Well, let's go ahead then and open up this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke, chapter 15. And we will start this morning by reading the whole chapter of Luke, chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him, that is Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Give me my inheritance, in other words. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. All of his friends had left him. You see, the money ran out, and the friends ran out when the money left. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I think the father was watching for him, hoping for him, waiting at the window, waiting for him to return day after day. And then one day he sees him coming up over the hill. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son, the older brother of the prodigal, 
Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. We're going to be looking this morning at what has been called the parable of the prodigal son. And prodigal, does anybody know what that word means, prodigal son? Oh, come on. Oh, it's the, it's the idea of wasteful or recklessly extravagant, I think is what one dictionary said. Wasteful or recklessly extravagant son. We ought to know what prodigal means, right? We say that all the time, the prodigal son. The wasteful son, the recklessly extravagant son. So that's what that, that term means. But instead of focusing this morning on the younger son, the prodigal son, who tends to get most of the attention, we're going to be focusing today on his older brother, And many times when this parable is taught, it is taught solely as a picture of salvation using the example of the younger brother. Something along these lines. He leaves home for a distant country. He's alienated from his father, who represents God in the parable. So he's alienated from God. He he spends all that he has. The pleasures of his sin run out, leaving him miserable, broke, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He comes to his senses, heads back to his father, which represents his repentance and his conversion. And, of course, far from being put out with him, the father receives him back. God receives him back with open arms, lavishes gifts upon him, and throws a party, rejoicing in his return. And all of that is wonderful truth. (laughs) I mean, I love just hearing it again. There's nothing wrong with that. But you see, Jesus' point in this parable is that there is not just one lost son. There's two. They express their lostness in different ways, but they were both equally lost. And the confrontation that the father has with the older brother at the end of Luke 15 is not simply tacked on as an afterthought. So In our our minds, sometimes we almost stop reading after the prodigal son comes back. And the rest of it we treat kind of as an afterthought, but it's not. The confrontation with the older brother, I believe, is actually the climax of the entire chapter of Luke 15. In other words, everything else that Jesus says in this chapter is actually leading up to the older brother. Now, why do I say that? For two reasons. First of all, consider Jesus' audience here in Luke 15. Who is Jesus directing all of these parables to In Luke 15, we'll look back at verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him, both the Pharisees and the scribes, 
teachers of the law, and so on, began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, Did you catch it? So he told them this parable. Who is the them here? Well, verse 2, Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. The them in verse 3 are the Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling at Jesus for receiving sinners and eating with them. So everything that follows here in Luke 15 is directed first and foremost to the scribes and Pharisees. And the climax of this is when Jesus gets to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son because it's the older brother in that parable who is cast as an exact representation of what the scribes and Pharisees were like. In other words, the older brother is the scribes and Pharisees. That's the point. And so Jesus directs all of the parables in this chapter towards the scribes and Pharisees, and at the very end then he lands a knockout punch by directly confronting their self-righteousness by casting the older brother as the embodiment of their sinful attitudes towards Jesus and his ministry to the lost. So I say again that everything Jesus says in this chapter is leading up to the older brother. And the first reason I say that is because of his audience, his primary audience, which were the Pharisees and the scribes, who are represented by that older brother at the end of the chapter. The second reason, though, why I think the confrontation between the father and the older brother is meant to be seen as the climax of the chapter is found in verse 3. Notice this here. Back in verse 3 it says, So he told them this parable, saying... Now notice something strange here. It says here in verse 3 that Jesus told the Pharisees and scribes this parable. Singular. You ever caught that before? He told them this parable. Singular. But then he goes on and he tells them three parables. Does that seem a little strange? Why does Luke record Jesus here as saying this parable when when Jesus in fact goes on to tell them three parables? And I think the answer is, is that Luke wants us to view these three parables in Luke 15 not as three separate, disconnected parables, but as one long parable that actually makes the same basic point several different ways. And I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it, as you read down through here, that these stories share some striking similarities. In each of these three parables, something is lost. A sheep, a coin... Sons. In every parable, something is lost. In each parable, there is diligent searching for what was lost. Now, you might say, well, how was the father searching for the son? Well, again, I think he was. He's watching for him, searching in that sense, waiting for him to return, anticipating, looking for him to come. But in every case, there's diligent searching for what was lost. The shepherd goes after the sheep. The woman sweeps for the coin. The father looks for his son. In each case, what once was lost is found. And then also in each case, there is great rejoicing on the part of those who received back what they had lost. 
So it's clear that these three stories are extremely similar to one another. And the reason why is because all three are meant to be read as one single parable directed to the scribes and Pharisees in order to rebuke them for their self-righteous attitude towards Jesus' ministry to the religious outcasts of that society. And what a rebuke it is. I mean, think of what Jesus is saying here through these parables. Think of what he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees. It's pretty scathing. What he's saying is this. Look, you grumble because I receive tax collectors and sinners, but what you don't understand is that I specifically came into this world to seek and to save some valuables that I've lost. Just like any rational person would seek diligently if they lost a sheep or a coin or especially a son. And every time that I find one of these valuables, God himself, along with the angels, celebrates because what once was lost has been found. And rather than celebrate too, you, scribes and Pharisees, would rather exclude yourselves from the celebration because of your own stubbornness and self-righteousness. That's the message that Jesus is sending to these scribes and Pharisees through these three parables. And so when you view the chapter as a whole, you can see clearly that what is happening here. Jesus is telling a single parable, directing it to the scribes and Pharisees as a rebuke. And like any good storyteller, he leaves the climax of the story till the end, builds up to it, and leaves the climax of the story for the end. And that climax, again, the high point is the confrontation between the father and the older brother. Now, what I'm trying to get at here is that we need to realize that we miss the point of Luke 15 if we don't give any emphasis to the older brother. He is the one Jesus is leading up to here because it's the older brother who represents the scribes and Pharisees, and it was the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was specifically directing this whole parable to. And it's so important also that we get this emphasis on the older brother because older brothers are alive and well in our day. They didn't die out in the first century. When you get right down to it, who are these scribes and Pharisees that are portrayed by the older brother? Who are they? These are the morally upright, clean living, thoroughly religious lost people that we see around us all the time and who often sit in our church week after week, Sunday after Sunday. They know their Bibles. They pray, they serve others, and their hearts are as far from God as the prodigal sons ever was. And so my hope this morning is that we might leave here better understanding the mindset of these older brothers. But this message also applies to believers as well, because the roots of the elder brother run deep. And there are many Christians, myself included, who are still affected by this older brother mindset, many times without even realizing it. So this isn't simply a message about the loss, but also a word to believers who still have remnants of the older brother that need to be brought to the light and rooted out and exposed and taken care of. So what does this older brother mindset look like? Well, Lord willing, this morning we're going to consider four characteristics of older brothers this morning. And then on Wednesday evening, what I want to do is return to this and draw out some more specific lessons and applications Um, from this account of the older brother. So four characteristics this morning, then, of the older brother. First of all, the older brother despised grace. He hated grace, the concept of grace. 
And I put this one first because in a lot of ways, everything, everything else follows on from this one. First and foremost, the older brother was a despiser of grace. And we can see this clearly in verses 28 through 30. It says, He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In the mind of the older brother, blessing should follow on from obedience. It's so simple, isn't it? If you obey, you earn blessing. If you disobey, you forfeit blessing. And clearly the prodigal son had disobeyed his father, thus forfeiting any blessing that the father might have given him. It's so clear cut. It's so black and white. It's so obvious. And it's so unlike God's grace. And we get used to this, beloved, but the grace of God is radical. It is astonishing. It is amazing grace. It wasn't just amazing 2,000 years ago. It's amazing and astonishing and radical today. Now, why do I say that? Because we are born into and are saturated with a performance-based culture that knows very little about grace. And let me illustrate this with a a new child born into modern America. We'll call him Johnny, little Johnny. (laughs) Johnny's born into a good moral family. So from an early age, his parents strive to teach him right and wrong. You've got to do that, right, with your children. Teach him right and wrong. He's taught that if he does certain things, he's rewarded. And he's taught that if he does certain other things, he's punished. In other words, blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. We had the opportunity this morning of exercising some punishment for disobedience when Gretchen found a tube of desitin when we weren't around and proceeded to smear it all over herself like sunscreen. Blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. Johnny gets older and he starts going to school where he finds out that if he gets good grades, certain blessings and privileges follow. And if he doesn't make the grade, certain negative consequences follow. Once again, blessing for positive performance, punishment if he falls short, loss of blessing if he falls short, you could say. Maybe Johnny wants to give sports a try, and he learns that if he's going to make the team, he has to perform at a certain level, right? Or the coach won't accept him, and he'll be cut from the team. Johnny gets older, and it's time to go to college. And if he wants to get into the college of his choice, he's going to have to perform at a certain level on an entrance exam. If not, he won't get in. Maybe Johnny finishes college, he gets a job in sales, and he learns that if he doesn't perform at a certain level, meet his quota or whatever, he'll lose his job. Now, you see what I'm getting at here? And we don't even think about this, but we are raised in a, perf- in a performance-based culture. We're raised with a performance-based mindset. It's simply the air that we breathe all the time. Tit for tat. You scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. 
If the waitress performs her job well, she'll get a tip. If she doesn't, forget it. Make the grade. Rise to the top. Stand out from the crowd. It's all about performance. It's all about earning a blessing based on doing in one way or another. It's ingrained in our culture and it's ingrained in our thinking. And, now hear me here, in a lot of ways, it's perfectly okay. It is. I mean, the world operates this way because the world has to operate this way or society would collapse in anarchy and rebellion. But here's the problem. Being steeped in this performance-based culture all the time makes it extremely difficult for us to understand and to appreciate grace. That's the problem. And that brings us back to the older brother here in Luke 15. In his mind, the father simply cannot bless the younger son in the face of such obvious disobedience. Can't do it. But you see, that's exactly what the grace of God does. Not only does God bless people who haven't met the conditions, he blesses people who have ever only done nothing but the exact opposite of what the conditions require. That's the way grace operates. It's the way grace must operate in order for it to be grace. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, performance, doing. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, right? If it's based at all on performance or works, it's no longer grace. It's just something you earn. It's a wage that's paid to you. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't have it both ways. You will either be saved by God solely on the basis of His grace alone, or you will be forced to relate to Him on the basis of your works, your personal performance. And if you're going to insist on relating to God on the basis of your performance, then there is nothing waiting for you at the end of the line except a curse. It's the only thing you have to look forward to. If you're going to relate to God based on your works, your performance, your doing, The only thing waiting for you is a curse. Why? Well, listen to Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law, as many as try to relate to God on the basis of their works, their performance, Paul says, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Do you hear it? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by some things written in the book of the law. No. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying that if you're going to insist on earning God's favor by your performance, then your performance must be 100% flawless. Why is that? Because God's holiness and his righteousness demand a standard of perfection. And he's not going to lower his standard for anyone. He's not going to wink at your sin. He's not going to smile at it, sweep it under the rug. He's holy. He's righteous. He has a standard. It's perfection. He can't lower that standard. And he will not lower his standard for anyone. Now you say, well, that's not fair. No one can meet that standard. 
Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> exactly. That's the point. That's the point. Which is why God, in His grace, has provided the Lord Jesus Christ as the substitute perfection that you need to be made right with God. That's the gospel. Your attempts to clean up your act, toe the line, turn over a new leaf, and keep the rules will always be imperfect. Always. So what should you do? Well, you give up. And you give glory to God by trusting in His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, who has graciously met all of the conditions in your place. (laughs) You're not perfect, and you never will be, but He is. He is. Trust in Him as your substitute. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But the older brother would have none of it. In his mind, the father cannot bless the younger son in light of his gross disobedience, which is just another way of saying that the older brother did not understand the concept of grace. He was a despiser of grace. In fact, this is incredible, grace actually made him mad. Grace makes him angry. And that leads into the second thing here this morning. The second characteristic of the older brother is that he was unable to rejoice when others are blessed. He's unable to rejoice when someone else was blessed. Verse 28, it says, He became angry and was not willing to to go in and join the celebration. Not only did he think that the younger son should not have been blessed by the father, but he felt like he should have been blessed because of his obedience. He actually gets mad when the younger son is blessed instead of him. He gets angry about it. Now, there's some overlap here with the first point, but I think it's good to expand on this a bit. And I particularly want those of us who are Christians this morning to examine our hearts in this matter. Because to me, this is a real test of where your heart is at. How do you respond when someone else is blessed instead of you? How do you respond when someone else is blessed instead of you? Do you find it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice? Which is a commandment from the Apostle Paul, rejoice with those who rejoice. Do you find it hard to do that? To the degree that you do, it is because you are still being affected by that performance-based mindset of the older brethren. You're not being controlled by a mindset of grace, by the mind of Christ. Now, consider a few illustrations here. Maybe your family is growing larger, and you'd really like to get a new minivan, but you can't afford it. And then you hear about how another family in the church was simply given a minivan as a gift by some fellow saints. How do you respond? Do you rejoice in the grace of God towards that family, or do you grumble? Because after all, you needed a van too, and no one gave you one, right? Maybe you've been praying for a long time that God would really begin to use you in ministry to advance His kingdom, but nothing seems to be happening. In the meantime, others around you seem to meet with blessing at every turn in their attempts to minister for God. How do you respond? 
Do you get bitter because God is not using you? After all, you're just as good, if not better than the people He is using, right? You deserve to be used just as much as they do, right? Or do you rejoice in the grace of God manifested towards them and rejoice that the kingdom of God is being advanced no matter who God uses to do it? Maybe you've been praying night and day with tears that God would pour out His Spirit on your church, pleading with Him for a special blessing, pleading for real revival. Real revival. And then revival finally comes. But not to your church. It comes to that other church in town. You know, the one that's not as doctrinally sound as you are. That church that doesn't deserve the blessing as much as you do. How do you respond? You get bitter? Or do you rejoice in the grace of God towards someone else? In Matthew 20, Jesus told a parable that I think fits in perfectly here. And I want to look at that this morning here. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. In some ways, this parable is really just a commentary on this particular point, being unable to rejoice when others are blessed. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, which was 9 a.m., and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give to you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. So that's noon and 3 p.m. Did the same thing again, hired more laborers. And about the eleventh hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, go into the vineyard too. Now, the situation so far in this parable is pretty straightforward. A man who represents God in this parable owns a vineyard, and he needs people to work in his vineyard. And so he goes out in the morning, maybe around 6 a.m. or so, and he hires a few workers who agree to work all day for a denarius. And that was a fair wage for a day's work at that time. One day's work, full day's work, worth one denarius. It was a fair wage. And they agreed to work for all day for that denarius. And then at 9 a.m., the vineyard owner goes out again, hires a few more workers, does the same thing again at noon and 3 p.m., keeps hiring a few more all along the way. And then finally, the vineyard owner goes out one more time at 5 p.m. and hires a final batch of workers. And then an hour later at 6 p.m., that's the end of the workday at that time. So at 6 p.m., the workday comes to an end. All right? Now, let's pick it up there in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. They were hired at 5 p.m. They had worked until 6 p.m. They had worked one hour, and they got a denarius. (laughs) 
When those hired first, way in the morning, came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, which is what they had agreed to work for. Remember? When they received it, now notice the language here. When they received it, they grumbled. Sound familiar? Same thing that the scribes and Pharisees were doing in Luke 15, grumbling. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. Okay, now, notice the language here again. They grumbled at the landowner. They were, they were actually mad at him. They were angry at the landowner that he had paid them only a denarius, even though they had agreed to that. They had worked all day but were paid the same amount as the guys who had only worked a single hour. And you can just hear the cries, can't you? I mean, as a teacher in a middle school, <laughs> right? That's not fair. That is not fair. I deserve to be paid more. That's not fair. I deserve that minivan. That's not fair. God should be using me. That's not fair. Our church deserves to be blessed. Well, how is the landowner going to possibly respond? Well, let's pick it up here, end in verse 13 through 16. Again, remember, the landowner is representing God here. Verse 13, He answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I... Am generous, so the last shall be first, and the first last. Now, notice here, especially verse fifteen. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own, or is your eye envious? Literally, evil. Is your eye evil because I am generous? Literally, good. Is your eye evil because I am good, is how that literally should read. And I think this statement here really gets to the heart of the problem. If you are unable to rejoice in the blessing of others, it's because there are a couple of things you're not seeing clearly. First of all, it's lawful for God to do whatever He wants with what belongs to Him. And beloved, everything belongs to Him. It all belongs to him. Again, Jesus says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Is that not lawful? Now notice that word lawful there. Lawful speaks of justice, fairness, rightness. God treats everyone with perfect justice. No one is ever treated unfairly by God. And in this parable, every single one of these workers in that vineyard received a fair wage. They all did. Fair wage. The workers who were hired first received the exact amount that they themselves had agreed to work for. Perfect fairness. But because the landowner, because God, because the landowner is so 
good. He decides to give the ones hired later the same amount. And that's when the grumbling starts. And that leads to the second thing I want to bring out from this. If you are unable to rejoice in the blessing of others but grumble, you are simply showing yourself to be perversely evil in the face of God's infinite goodness. In other words, that grumbling exposes something in your heart. It exposes an evil there. God says, is your eye evil because I am good? It's an incredible statement, isn't it? People actually get mad at God because he is so good. He's so good that he gives people above and beyond anything they could possibly deserve or earn by their performance. And instead of rejoicing in that, people grumble about it. And they get angry about it. That should have been me. you know. I deserve that. Now, apply this to the older brother. Instead of rejoicing in how good the father was to so graciously bless the younger son... The older brother in Luke 15 instead focuses all of his attention on how undeserving his younger brother is of receiving grace. You get that? Instead of rejoicing in the goodness of the father, he focuses all of his attention on how undeserving the younger son is of receiving any blessing. And isn't that exactly what we tend to do? You know, we hear of somebody being blessed in some way, And we think secretly, man, they don't deserve that. I know how they struggle. I know their sins, their prayerlessness, their failings, their faults, their lack of service, their lack of ministry, whatever. They don't deserve that. He doesn't deserve that blessing. You see how ridiculous we can be? How stupid we can be. Of course they don't deserve the blessing. If they deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. If they deserved it, God wouldn't get the glory for being so good that he goes above and beyond what a person deserves. Many times we just don't get it. We don't get it. And the older brother didn't get it either. What the older brother doesn't see is that he himself is just as undeserving of receiving anything good from the Father. He doesn't understand that the things, I'll get this, the older brother and the mindset of the older brother, he doesn't understand that the things which the Father gives to the prodigal son are not meant to highlight the worthiness of the receiver but instead are meant to highlight the goodness and the graciousness of the giver. It's not about the person getting it. It's about the goodness and the graciousness of the one giving it, God. To God be the glory for his grace, not to man be the glory for his supposed goodness. The focus should be on the giver of grace, not the receiver of the blessing. And may it never be that the Lord would have to look at us and say, Is your eye evil because I am good? It's a test. It cuts me. 
If he does, though, it's only because we're once again manifesting that characteristic of the older brother, of being unable to rejoice when others are blessed. Now, let's turn back to Luke 15, wrapping it up here. Back in Luke 15, the third characteristic of the younger, or I'm sorry, the third characteristic of the older brother that I want to bring out here is that he manifested an outward conformity coupled with an inward rebellion. The older brother had an outward conformity, you might say an outward obedience, coupled with an inward rebellion. The prodigal son took what he could get from his father and went on a journey into a distant land. But the reality of the situation is that the older brother who stayed home was just as much at a distance from his father as the prodigal son ever was. You hear me? Even though he had stayed home, he was really just as much at a distance from his father as the prodigal son ever got on his journey to a distant land. The difference is that the journey of the older brother took place in his heart instead of outwardly traveling to some foreign land. The older brother's journey took place inward. And I think we can see this again in verse 29 through 31. But he answered, the older brother answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. The father says to the older son, son, you've always been with me. And in a sense, that was true. On an external level, the older brother had never left home. He had stayed so he could serve his father, which is noble, commendable. The problem is that the older son was not serving his father out of love for his father. He was serving him for what he could get from him. And the whole thing here with the younger brother just brings that out of his heart. The truth is revealed. Again, verse 29, and you can just hear it in his voice, the sneering. Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. You just hear it, the anger. The mindset of the older brother is not that of a son serving his father out of love, but a slave serving a master in order to get something in return. And you see, a master doesn't care whether his slave loves him or not. All the master wants to do is to get the job done. The external obedience is everything. In a slave-master relationship, the external obedience is everything. On the other hand, the only thing that a father really cares about is whether or not his son loves him from the heart. The external obedience is there, but it takes a distant second to the condition of the heart in a father-son relationship. So the question for all of us here this morning is, do we serve God because we love him? Yeah, that's a searching question. When everything else is stripped away, do I serve God because I love Him? 
Or do we serve him like a slave serves a master with a mere external obedience while at the same time our hearts are on a journey to a distant country? Do we pray because we love being in God's presence? Do we read our Bibles because we long to hear the voice of our beloved? Do we do good to others because we're overflowing with thankfulness for how much God has freely done for us? In another place, Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And that's a perfect description of the older brother. He manifested an external obedience coupled with an internal rebellion from his father. And that's a warning for us as well. The Lord Jesus Christ wants your heart. He wants your heart. Give me your heart, my son. Any obedience that does not flow out of a heart of love for him needs to be repented of. Otherwise, we're no different than the older brother who served his father outwardly while at the same time his heart was on a journey somewhere else. Lastly then, fourth characteristic, we'll end with this one. The last characteristic of the older brother is that he manifested a complete blindness to his own sin. A blindness to his own sin. Again, verse 29. He answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. I've been perfect. (laughs) Never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And what we have here is a classic case of needing to take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly enough to take the speck out of someone else's eye. The older brother had no problem whatsoever pointing out how sinful the younger brother had been. In verse 30, he reminds his father, as if the father needed to be reminded of it, but he reminds the father that the younger brother had devoured the father's wealth with prostitutes, throwing the sin of the younger brother back in the father's face. Notice how he even distances himself from his younger brother in verse 30. You notice that? He doesn't say, when my brother came back. He says, when this son of yours came. You see, he's not in the same realm as his younger brother. He's good. He's moral. He keeps all the rules. Isn't the deception here unbelievable? At the very same time that the older son is screaming about how sinful the prodigal brother is, his own heart is raging with anger towards his father, who has done nothing but demonstrate how gracious he is. You see that? He's railing about how sinful the younger brother is, while at the same time his heart is just overflowing with wickedness and anger towards his own father. Total blindness to his own sin. We see a similar deception at work in another parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. And since this is close, let's go ahead and turn there. 
Again, I think this is an, an excellent commentary on this point. Blindness to your own sin. Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Sounds familiar. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, who was looked down on by Pharisees. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I Get, again, sound familiar? I've never neglected a command of yours, the older brother said. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus brings in the zinger ending. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went to his house justified, right with God. This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee in this parable trusted in himself that he was righteous and viewed others with contempt, looked down his nose at other people. And at the very same time, it's incredible, the deception here, the blindness, at the very same time that he's thanking God for how righteous he is, he's driving the tax collector into the ground. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this wicked tax collector over here. There's an utter blindness to the true state of his own heart. Just like in the case of the older brother. Trusting in yourself and trusting in Christ are two diametrically opposed realities. The two cannot coexist. To the degree that you are trusting in your own righteousness, to that same degree, you are basically telling the Lord Jesus Christ that you can do just fine without him. After all, if you have your own righteousness, why do you need his? You don't, right? If you're already righteous, you don't need Jesus' righteousness. you got your own. Good to go. But it's all a deception, you see. The tax collector had it right. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so humbled by his state, by his sin. He knew he fell short of God's standard. And he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But it says he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then what does Jesus say? I tell you, this man, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. This man rather than the other. It's an incredible statement. And I want to close this morning by applying that same statement to our story back in Luke 15. Because Luke 15 also tells us about someone who went to his house justified. Of course, in Luke 15, that someone who went to his house justified was the prodigal son. 
And it's amazing, isn't it? At the end of the day, the prodigal son went back to his house justified and in a right relationship with his father. While the older brother remained outside stewing in his self-righteousness and viewing his younger brother with contempt. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning realizing for the first time that you are an older brother. You're self-righteous, you're critical of others, you despise grace, despise the grace of God, and you serve Him only externally while your heart is far from Him. Well, now what? Are you cut off forever? Does the Father want nothing to do with you anymore? May it never be. Because look at the attitude of the father here in this parable towards the older brother. First, he goes out of the house and he seeks out the older brother. And he pleads with him to come into the celebration. Notice again, verse 28, back in Luke 15, verse 28. He became angry, was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. So the father actually comes out of the house and pleads with this older brother to come inside. And if you are outside the house of God this morning, the only thing that keeps you outside is you. Because notice what it says. It says the older brother was not willing to go in. It's the only thing that keeps anyone out of the house of God. They're unwilling to go. It's the only thing. He was unwilling to go in. But God is reaching out to you. He comes out to you, pleading with you. Come in. Join the celebration. There's plenty for everyone. Just come in. But not only does the father plead with his older son, he offers to give him an abundance if he will only come in. In verse 31, Son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. My abundance is yours for the taking. Come in. Delight yourself in abundance. It's wonderfully ironic because the older son was upset in verse 29 because the father never gave him anything in return for his obedience. But what the older son could not earn by his obedience, the father offers to freely give him if he will only put down his rebellion and come into the celebration. That's all that he asks. Put that anger away. Rejoice with us. Come in. In the words of Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. That's what the father's saying to that older brother. Come in, delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And if you feel this morning that God is exposing you as being an older brother, take heart. Take heart, he only exposes you in order to draw you to himself. He comes out to you, pleading with you to join the celebration, to stop trusting in yourself and your own supposed righteousness and to delight yourself instead in his abundance. Now, notice here finally that there's no real ending to the parable. 
It stops kind of abruptly. We have the climax, if you're thinking in literary terms. You have the climax of the story, but you have no resolution to the story. How does the older brother respond? We don't know. But the question for you this morning is, how will you respond to the pleas of the father? The story is open-ended. How will you respond? 